Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Melissa Kagan, who is the author of Wandering Games. Melissa, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. I'm very excited to talk about this book with you. Great. Could you start out um, by, before we get into really the nuts and bolts of the book, talking a little bit about why you wrote this book? What was it? And maybe as you do, talking about a little bit what wandering games are (laughs) and and how this book sort of came about. Totally. Uh, Great questions all. Um, So I came to uh, this book, this project, uh, through a pretty circuitous path, Um, a little bit meta, how much I wandered around getting to this project. Um, But the book, in one sentence, is about how 21st century ideologies of work, colonialism, gender, and death are reflected in the ways that we wander through digital spaces. Uh, However, where I started was with questions like, what does it mean to be a wandering body in a game world? What does your ability to wander within different game worlds say about the way the game is constructed, the kind of game world that is created and the boundaries of that world, uh, the body that either you inhabit as an avatar or that uh, you have in real life uh, that is in some ways reflected in uh, what you can and cannot do within within the game. Um, and, you know, what happens when we take the wandering part of a game seriously? Uh, I did not start in game studies. I only came to game studies about uh, six years ago. Um, my PhD was actually in German studies. So I was doing all this research on um, wandering opera, actually. Um, I was interested in early 20th century German Jewish opera, and I was interested in um, different tropes of wandering uh, in the German context and the Jewish context and the German Jewish context. I was directing a lot of these like site-specific wandering operas. Uh, and at some point, someone said to me, you should really play this new type of game called a walking simulator. Uh, you just wander through game worlds uh, in that, or you, you wander, uh, and that's kind of the only thing you're doing in those games. This might be interesting for a person such as you who's dissertating on this concept of wandering. Um, so then I started playing those games around 2013, 2014. And by the time I got my PhD in 2016, I was like, yeah, I should be in game studies. Um, so... Since then, that's I've kind of I've switched focus, and that's uh, what I've been doing. 
So could you talk a little bit about like these walking simulator games and and what they are and putting them in the context of gaming and video gaming in sort of that larger context? So folks who aren't gamers or who don't, like you said, it's sort of a newer concept um, when we think about that, what that kind of means and, and where that is. Sure. So my definition of walking simulators uh, on page one <laughs> is that walking sims are exploratory, nonviolent video games without points, goals, or tasks in which the undying third-person player character, uh, PC, wanders around a narratively rich space. So uh, these are classics of the genre, are games like The Path or Journey or Proteus, uh, and then Around 2010 to 2013, uh, they kind of burst into the mainstream scene with um, hits like Gone Home and then Firewatch, Virginia, Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, um, Tacoma. Uh, But I didn't want the book to just be about walking simulators. I kind of wanted to start in that couple years where walking simulators kind of burst into the scene and became really popular in some areas uh, and also provoked a whole lot of backlash in some other areas of gaming. Um, And I wanted to take this emergence of the genre of the walking simulator and think about how it both didn't come from nowhere uh, and it also hasn't now disappeared, um, but rather there is a very long history to... um, People, creative people thinking a lot about what it means to wander, uh, and that comes into the evolution of the walking sim. Um, And now, uh, in early 2020s gaming, um, we have games that I would call uh, hybrids that have different elements of the walking sim. It's basically just kind of percolated into gaming writ large. Um, And so, uh, even when we don't have games that are explicitly called walking simulators, although we do still have some of those. Um, we still have uh, a whole lot of games that I'm considering as wandering games, which is to say games where I take the wandering that happens in those games seriously, the way wandering is taken seriously in a walking set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really fascinating to me because I'm like, oh, I've never like it made me think about some of the games I play differently, right? That like, yes, that is kind of wandering and kind of exploring that narrative. And sometimes you want to get to the end, but sometimes you're like, oh, where's this story going to lead me, or where am I going to go with this? So, yeah. So one of the things you look at too, or talk about, and maybe we can talk about this, and we'll talk about this more deeply with we when we talk about the games is that this is very gendered, right? And how we think about games and and these kind of games. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that kind of gendering of this idea of walking and wandering in the gaming world um, and out and how you talk about it sort of outside of the gaming world, how historically how we look at this. So gender in gaming um, and the gendering of walking simulators is where I originally started with this project. Uh, I was quite interested in why this genre of games is kind of gendered female uh, or sometimes queer coded. And there's been a lot of really interesting research on women in games and queer people in games, um, queer game studies, uh, people like Bo Ruberg and Cody Mayor uh, and Demetrius Plavlunis, sorry, um, have talked a lot about queer aspects of the walking sim 
Um, and so the simplest kind of reason why these games get female coded um, is that in some ways there's no there there. Uh, Another way to phrase that is that the pleasure and entertainment of the walking simulator uh, is oftentimes quieter and more abstract, less task-oriented, um, less violent. Um, so when these games started coming out in some areas of gaming, um, which is sometimes, I don't want to say all over the place, but some areas of gaming culture are... Uh, very heteronormative and uh, filled with a kind of macho masculinity. Uh, and so the notion of a game where the player is prevented from action uh, struck some people as a very uncomfortable kind of forced passivity, which got coded as female. Uh, so um, these games also... Uh, Ha oftentimes have attracted a more general audience, um, which is in a lot of cases filled with a greater proportion of female players and queer players than the overall uh, population of gamers. Um, so that's another reason why they got, uh, why the walking simulator, uh, which was originally this derogatory term for a game that lacked something, you know, what do, what do you do in this game? Like, well, you just walk, like, that's all it is. Um, so yeah, those are some reasons why uh, gender came into this project from the beginning and became so interesting. To me. <laughs> so let's get into the games and talk about some of the other, uh, you know, ways in which you look at these and analyze these. And so um, you, you want to just start with let's start with the first game you talk about. Let's just kind of walk through and maybe talk a little bit about um, the game and then how you kind of examined it and looked at it. So your first game is um, Obradin. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which my son is a gamer and loves papers, please. So I was like, have you done this one? And he's like, no. Like, so I think, um, I, I think you might have a con, might have a convert, right? Cause he thinks papers, please. is like the greatest thing ever right now. Totally. Um, besides FIFA 2023. But <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about Oberdin, that choice, and um, and and the late capitalism, what you were kind of seeing in this game? Yeah, so broadly speaking, the way I approached writing this book was in each chapter, I look at a different game, and then I think, what are the different ideologies and cultural resonances that come up? when we think about how we wander through this game. Uh, so in each chapter, that means something different because the way we wander through each of these different games I consider uh, is different and brings up different things. Uh, so this chapter, uh, late capitalism with the emphasis on late, I really liked that pun because there's a lot of death and a lot of capitalism in this game. Um, I was thinking about so caring for corpses in Return of the Oberdin is the subtitle of the chapter. Uh, and this is a game in which you play as an insurance adjuster for the East India Company. Uh, and you are at work. Your job is to go aboard this ghost ship. Uh, so a ship that has come back into port in, I think, 1806 or so. Um, it had 60 
passengers or 60 humans originally on the manifest, uh, but now it's come back into port and there's no one alive on it any longer. And so you wander around the ship finding the corpses of all of the people who died on the ship, some of whom worked there, some of whom were passengers, some of whom were related to someone who worked there who was a passenger. Uh, and when you get to each corpse, you can use this magical uh, clock called a memento mori, and you click on the corpse, and it takes you back to the 15 seconds or so before that person died. Um, so I was really interested in this game initially, both because it's just a fantastic game by Lucas Pope. It's, I loved Papers, Please as well, but I think this one is better. Um, it is such intricate uh, narrative work uh, that the game does, that he does, um, tying together all of the stories of all of these people's lives. Uh, and something I found so interesting about it is that you are really... Uh, the mechanic is such that you are caught in the, the moment before the death of each of these characters. Um, and so you're basically exploring this archive of corpses, um, which was especially interesting to me because I have had previously been theorizing wandering around in some game worlds, like the classic Gone Home, uh, as a kind of archival adventuring. So usually you go into a space in a game and you see a whole bunch of texts and then you read through those texts and and by text I mean that generally, like maybe they're voice recordings, maybe there's a diary, maybe there's a painting. And you are the archival adventurer. You are trying to put together all of those bits and pieces of the archive and tell that story in a way that makes sense to you as the player. Like you're knitting together the story with your feet. In this game, you kind of have it backwards. <laughs> you have a whole bunch of bodies <laughs> that you then are trying to interact with and then make into a book. Uh, you get the manifest and you're trying to write down in this mystery story sort of way what uh, the answers are to uh, the question on every page, which is who is this person? How did they die? Um, I forget the third question. Uh, but you're, you're taking, you're uh, interacting with bodies and trying to turn them into text. Whereas in typical walking simulators, you're interacting with text and then kind of turning them into bodies in your mind. Uh, yeah, so that was that was the initial place I started there. Um, and then that got me into all these questions about work um, and what it means that all of these people are were working um, when they died. Most of the characters in this game uh, were working on the ship. Uh, and so, and you also, as the investigator are also technically at work. So there grows this disjoint between you as the player who comes to care very much for all of these people who die in incredibly gruesome ways. Um, the game mechanic pushes you to really care a lot about their lives, uh, not just their deaths. You have to care about all the relationships on the ship in order to figure out who they were. Um, and so by the end, you're really invested in them. Uh, but then you as a player character, as this investigator, all you care about is the dollars and cents, or I guess the pounds and whatever, because uh, it's uh, a British ship. Um, all you care about is kind of the financial insurance payouts. Um, and so that disjoint creates like this real late capitalist gap uh, between what you you know, emotionally might care about as a human versus what you uh, care about as a worker. 
Right. And and you move us from like thinking about this game to another idea of work, right? And you look at um East Shade, which sounds like a beautiful game, right? Um, where you wander and paint and where right? Like, so could you t- uh, like you I I have to say that I'm kind of glad I read your book towards the end of my term because then I have this list of games that I can just play um over break. Um and and yes, and then tell my children they have to play too, so we can discuss the games. But yeah, so can you talk a little bit about East Shade and how you see the wandering and gaming um, in that totally game as well? East Shade was such a beautiful game to play and to wander around. I really loved it. I came back to it as like my comfort game for a while after I played it. Um, and so in this game, you are also at work. Uh, but your work is quite different. You are not an insurance adjuster. You are instead a traveling artist. Um, And you wander around this beautiful fantasy landscape uh, that's very safe and very calm, very cozy, um, very friendly. Uh, And you uh, are trying to paint paintings and find commissions. Um, And so... What I was really interested in here is the way that um, there is a gap, again, (laughs) uh, between kind of the dream, like the romantic vision of what it would be to be a wandering artist, what it is to be a wandering artist, contrasted with the sometimes uh, harsh practicalities, uh, economic, financial practicalities of being essentially a freelance artist. And because this is a game, because it's a fantasy, uh, we don't, the game kind of erases most of the harshness of that. Um, But there are still a whole lot of typical RPG economies at play. You're collecting um, what's called glowstones. So there's like this baseline, like you're collecting money. You also have to collect various supplies. Uh, You have to keep your relationships with various characters going. Um, You you have all of these different kind of explicit or implicit economies that you have to juggle uh, all while maintaining uh, this all while the game kind of maintains this this relative illusion of the romance of the wandering artist. Um, It's this fantasy of work. Uh, and I found that really interesting too, in comparison with, um, or in, in conversation with the same sort of types of work that go on in the game industry, including in the creation of this game, uh, where there's all this discourse of laboring, a labor of love, you know, love your work, um, and you'll never work a day in your life. Um, this whole, like, discourse about how work has to be the thing that fulfills you and that you put your love into it um, happens a lot in the game industry and is the cause of a lot of um, labor violations. (laughs) And is one of the reasons why the whole game industry is unionizing right now, uh, because this total imbrication of love and work uh, can get really exploitative uh, for a lot of people. Um, And so this is a fantasy in which it doesn't get exploitative. It's a fantasy in which your work really is lovable and does matter. uh, And you do get fulfillment from it, um, which is not the reality of that experience for most people in the gaming industry or in general who love their work. One thing, too, that was super interesting 
um, about this game and thinking about that it, the the wandering aspect too, and that it seemed to occur in other games as well, is that you are pushed by people to wander more right like so sometimes you're like well i'm gonna you know get on the horse or i'm gonna do this and you're not allowed to do it right away so there's also this way to push you to explore more and appreciate and be in that space more which is really fascinating totally and coming out of uh you know 19th and 20th century german jewish studies i was also seeing this strong uh historical echo of um the notion of the romantic wanderer, you're very much a romantic, you know, like a Gretian style, like hero who goes out into the world and seeks his fortune and um, has all of these beautiful adventures and exciting interactions. Um, and that's kind of the fantasy. Um, and then the practical reality uh, in 19th century Europe uh, was a lot more about uh, journeymen uh, traveling for work uh, and experiencing privations and having to be away from family and having all these inconveniences and, and difficulties and poverty. Uh, so, um, yeah, you're, you're very much encouraged to wander, um, in this game. Uh, and it's in part so delightful because it's kind of the way that emotionally you feel like it should be rather than the way that historically or currently it ever actually is. <laughs> <laughs> so you move from this kind of wandering this game where yes where it, it you you don't have to worry about the money you don't have to worry about any, you know any of that um to this very ritualistic game which again I was like oh I will have time to do this for like you know, 30 days. So like ritual in the moon. So it's not this game where you spend a lot of time on the game, but it really is about like this other kind of ritual. And I love the witchcraft part too. So can you talk about um, <laughs> ritual of the moon and kind of what you were seeing with this and, and thinking about body and constraints to the, especially the feminine body and the female body. Absolutely. So this uh, this game had a very different feel from East Shade. Um, also, I mean, completely beautiful game. Obviously, I loved all the games because they were all games that I wanted to spend so much time with. Uh, this uh, chapter uh, was called Walking in Circles, Bodily Constraints in Ritual of the Moon. Um, Ritual of the Moon is um, what's called a durational game. Uh, you are playing, you have to play or you're instructed to play about five minutes a day. Uh, and you can only play about five minutes a day, but you have to then remember to play every single day for 28 days. Uh, the story is you are a witch uh, or you have, no, you actually are a witch. You haven't just been accused, but you, you are a witch and you have been exiled to the moon uh, and you have incredible cosmic power. Uh, and so every day a comet streaks towards the earth and you can either use your power to avert it or you can let it hit uh, or you can actually direct it directly into the earth so that it does hit. Um, and so you're this witch, you command massive astrophysical power um, and you also suffer mightily at the hands of the societally powerful. You have been exiled to the moon. You're suffering a lot of loss and heartbreak um, and loneliness. Uh, and so 
Um, there is this ritualistic element to the game where before you make your choice about the comet, every single day you go into your spaceship and you conduct a ritual. You order several objects and there is a mantra and there's an image that, or a visual that seems a little bit like breathing. Um, and so, and then you go back outside and you make your choice on whether to save or whether to destroy. Uh, so I read this game um, as being about uh, constraints on the wandering body, specifically the female body, uh, when, you know, when there have been these extreme constraints placed around movement, uh, you're denied the chance to exert agency over space and wander around freely, what is left? What do we see then? Um, and part of what I saw was that this game is not just interesting as a meditation on constraints around the female body, but also around other uh, marginalized bodies, um, the uh, disabled body, the queer body, um, the racialized body. Uh, so I, I read this game through each of those different discourses um, because each of those constraints uh, are interestingly, are really beautifully uh, depicted in the way that you are and are not constraint in this game. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Right. And so this idea of like the body and constraints also, it seems to like continue um, in other ways in some of the other games you like look at and you move to. So I'm like, you then move to 80 days. Right. And, and I kept wondering, like I, the the German board game was fat. The board game was fascinating, but now it all makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but this idea of like, you know, thinking about exploration and you do that in the next couple of games and colonialism, but it still, it also is this idea of who we, how we constrain bodies and, and how we kind of confine bodies. So can you talk about then, um, 80 days and, and what is happening in 80 days in that game? And Sure. Um, so in the next two games, I then move into concerns about, um, colonialism. So my, my third theme after work and gender, I get to colonialism. Um, this game, really fun. Uh, it, it, the chapter brings the concept of post-colonialism into the theory of wandering games. Um, I focus on this game called 80 Days that is about a quintessential narrative of exploration and colonialism, Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days, uh, which has been gamified many times uh, and has been retold and filmed many times too. Um, but in this particular game um, by Inkle Studios, so both of the next two games are by Inkle Studios, uh, which uh, is obviously a studio that I really admire uh, and appreciate their work. Um, so something that's interesting in this game is that you have this quintessential narrative of colonialism. You have explorers who are from Europe uh, and are traveling around the world um, in a way that in its initial source text was uh, really Orientalist and uh, 
uh, racist. Um, but here in this game, um, the explorer is decentered, which is to say, um, the explorer is decentered, uh, which is a radical choice, both in terms of turning the original source material around and also in terms of games and game design in general. Usually the player character uh, is really catered to in a game. The entire game world, uh, right down to its code, uh, in some games, it kind of remakes the whole world around you as you move through it. Um, you are the center of this universe, uh, which is, of course, part of what makes a lot of games so fun. You know, you're exploring this world that was made for you, uh, especially if it's a single player game, you can feel rightfully kind of at the center of the universe. Uh, so, um, however, uh, in this game, it that gets turned around um, so you are not the center of the universe. You are instead, um, kind of wandering through or traveling through, uh, all of these other, uh, meeting all of these other people in all of these other countries, all of whom really their stories are much more interesting than you. So it comes across a lot more like a travelogue, uh, than a heroic explorer story, um, which is, this very strong decolonial move, um, and also a very strong nar narrative move or narrative design move, um, because when the player is refused all of their heart's desires, interesting things happen. Um, Magna Giant, who uh, wrote um, for for the game, uh, has this quote that I'm not going to get quite right, but uh, basically, you know what adventure story do you ever know where the hero gets exactly what they want all of the time? You don't ever see that in a novel because that wouldn't really be that interesting. Um, and so this game creates that dynamic too, that like you are never going to, or it's very difficult to like ever find out all of the stories uh, that are happening in the game, um, which is fine because it's not about you. Uh, and the experience of that feels different. And you also, with 80 Days, look at the way, you know, you mentioned earlier that this, you know, Jules Verne book has been turned into games literally for century, over a century, right? Um, and so this idea of how what's going on in the this game, 80 Days, sort of is different and changes the narrative around colonialism and around exploration than you saw in a, a very early board game version of this text. And so could you talk just a little bit about that? Cause I think it's fascinating. Sure. Yeah. So, um, the, the kind of companion game that I look at, um, in this chapter, uh, is a, uh, I'm looking up the date right now. Um, 1884, um, this game called Trip Around the World, um, originally in German, Reise um die Erde, was designed by Otto Meyer for uh, Ravensburger. So um, Ravensburger is still a very famous board game publisher. Uh, and this was its very first board game uh, that uh, Otto Meyer uh, and I think Sons, no, just Otto Meyer, um, designed in 1884. Uh, right around the moment that the Jules Verne novel uh, was so popular uh, and, you know, it was an immediate hit when it came out. Um, this board game is uh, in a style of board game, a very old style of board game called a goose game. Uh, it's basically a spiraling linear board. Uh, 
And on each one of these, um, well, 80 spaces, uh, you are treated, quote unquote, um, that's scare quotes, um, <laughs> to all of these poems um, that reflect or that depict where your character is going around the world. Um, and, you know, this is this is from 1884, uh, and it certainly reads like that. Um, the poems are really racist and colonialist, uh, and in part, the function of this game was educational. Uh, European children were to play this game and therefore, you know, learn about the world, which is to say learn a very uh, particular, uh, a very particular and racist understanding of the world. Um, and so... An interesting thing that came up when I thought about this game in comparison with the uh, modern version of the story and uh, 80 Days uh, is that here um, in the board game, we have a, a shift or a, a rather a switch between space and time. Um, in in Reise um die Erde, space is reskinned into time. Um, so each space around the board, you have 80 spaces uh, for representing, of course, the 80 days. Uh, and what that means is that there is this fatality to the story of the game. Um, there isn't really a question of whether or not a player will succeed. Uh, of course, a player will succeed. If you keep rolling the dice, there is no way you are going to be unlucky enough as to not eventually get back to your starting point. There's no way to lose. Uh, so this is the opposite of what happens in 80 days where it's extremely possible to lose. Um, and, you know, I've, I've played it where I've won. I've played it where I've lost. Like lots of things happen. Um, the world is not catering to you in 80 days. Whereas in Reise um die Erde, um, it's really implicitly um, and in its design, making sure that the white audience playing this game is not ever going to be troubled by something like losing. <laughs> they are going to get to the end point um, just because of the way that the game is designed. Um, so the other Inkling games that you look or um, Engel Studios game that you look at is Heaven's Vault. So can you talk and you look at this through um, a similar kind of uh, post-colonial lens. So can you talk a little bit about um, Heaven's Vault and what you kind of see and how that is a bit different than 80 Days, but what you see going on there and wandering? Totally. Uh, that is also an incredibly beautiful Engel Studios game. Uh <sighs> And in this game, um, in this game, I was interested in, okay, so let me describe the game first <laughs> before I jump into it. Um, this is a game that has most often so far uh, been examined through the, uh, through the discipline or the subdiscipline of archaeo gaming, um, which is to say it's an innovative ludic, ludic depiction of archaeology um, and a translation mechanic. Um, so you play as an archaeologist, Aaliyah, and she roams around this fictional nebula following the traces of a missing person. But that's really just 
the spur to get the game going. The more she learns about this person's disappearance, the deeper she falls into the mythology of the nebula, which is this universe of looping time, abused robots, fallen and forgotten empires, a language called ancient. Uh, and that language is the major mechanic of the game. Um, it's inscribed in short phrases on all of these artifacts that she finds during her travels. Uh, and so um, a lot of what you're doing during the game is learning parts of the language in order to understand what it is uh, that happened in the past of this universe um, so that you can kind of put Elia's story together. Um, so this is a chapter in which I looked at the game as a world made up of many different kinds of linguistic fragments. There's a lot of different kind of reading and writing. Um, and Alia uh, is, um, both Alia and the player have to learn how to read all this language. Uh, and her ability to do so is inflected uh, strongly by her um, status as a colonial subject who has been educated in the imperial center. Uh, she has been educated at the University of Ajax, but she originally uh, grew up in a uh, colonized planet um, uh, in the, the universe. Uh, and because of this background, she, she has this multicultural knowledge that uniquely situates her uh, in a way that makes it possible to solve all these vast ancient mysteries. So uh, I then talk about how language historically serves to uphold colonialist norms and how this game gives the player a linguistic space to practice resisting that violence. Um, so the wandering in this game is like wandering through language and digression is like, how can you push back against the hegemonic violence of an imperial language? Uh, which this game gives you a chance to do, which is really cool. Um, and then in the final section, uh, you kind of digress enough, enough, enough that you can get to the point where you can kind of rewrite the whole map uh, and, oh, spoilers, sorry, you can make the choice to kind of have Aaliyah rewrite the whole map and start over. Um, and so I use some um, decolonial theory from um, Edward Glissant and Sylvie Winter, um, who writes that the bleak story of humanity's future stems directly from colonial violence, and that by writing humanity an alternate past, we could perhaps find a way toward a different future, um, which is what I argue Haddonfeld gives us the chance to do. So uh, you go, your last two games you look at um, move us from, many of these games are independent games that you've looked at, sort of smaller games, but then you kind of look into sort of larger, large scale um, gaming. And so can you talk about those last two games then too, and how you kind of see um, gaming happening in these bigger gaming companies yeah. Uh, so for this last chapter, where I look at Death Stranding and The Last of Us Part Two, I wanted to challenge myself to look at AAA games. So that's big games, big studios, a lot more funding, um, much larger worlds, um, oftentimes much more complicated in some ways, <laughs> uh, games with a lot more possibilities for the player. Um, and both of these games are 
worlds are, are, are games where the player wanders around a post-human, post-apocalyptic, post-death world. So this was the chapter where I really got to death, uh, although honestly, death has been there since the beginning. Um, digression has forever uh, in literature been a way to avoid death, uh, and certainly no less in gaming. You know, if you keep digressing, digressing, side quest, side quest, side quest, you will, uh, well, you know, you try to avoid dying just as a player character, um, but then you also are trying to avoid the metafictional death, which happens at the end of the game, when you finish the game and then it's over for you. Uh, so... In both of these games, uh, death gets ratcheted up to a whole new level because you're not just dealing with the metaphorical death of the player character dying, uh, but you're actually in a in an entire world where some kind of post-apocalyptic post-death event has happened. And they're different post-apocalypses, um, post-death worlds. Um, death Stranding uh, is a little was a little less familiar to me. Uh, it's a, um, what was once the United States, you're roaming as basically an Uber Eats delivery man after the apocalypse, and you're trying to connect essentially Wi-Fi networks all across this devastated landscape uh, where all of these shadowy uh, death creatures uh, are haunting the landscape. Um, and you have this unique biological capacity to... Um, come back after you've after your character has died um and then the last of us part two you play in a zombie apocalypse um many years after the zombie apocalypse has happened um so what i found when roaming around these games um was that i kind of came back to these initial questions i had at the beginning of the project um what is what does it mean to be a wandering body in a game world um, what does it say about the game, the world, the body? Um, and so I looked at the world, these post-death worlds, uh, and I read them as uh, what I called post-apocalyptic pastorals, this kind of nostalgia for a pastoral uh, wandering experience um, that might only be possible after the end of all things. Um, and that's a trope that we see in a lot of different fictional spaces, um, like The Walking Dead, you know, the beauty of nature that kind of comes back when uh, different aspects of modern civilization are kind of falling to falling back into a state of nature. Uh, and then I also looked at the bodies that wander through these worlds as cursed endless wanderers that the player might be enjoying all of this endless wandering, but certainly in these two games, um, the characters, you know, if if they had agency uh, to want things, uh, are not enjoying it um, and are in both of these cases kind of cursed to eternal life and eternal wandering, um, which I, uh, to me, felt very connected to the myth of um, the anti-Semitic myth of the wandering Jew, uh, the character cursed to wander forever um, and never given uh, rest uh, or redemption uh, or the ability to stop wandering. Um, so a, a bleak end to the book. Um, although um, what I what what I came to by the end of it was that this kind of endless wandering through these post-death worlds uh, experientially feels like a pilgrimage more than anything else, um, which I thought was really interesting because these are really violent AAA games. Um, and there are these kind of like secret 
or not so secret, but kind of subtle and not really advertised aspects of spiritual pilgrimage that happen um, when you take seriously all of the wandering around that you do. You know, you you these characters, they have something uh, very broken uh, in their lives and in their worlds, and they're trying to walk their uh, their spiritual world back together. Uh, and they kind of don't succeed. <laughs> and that feels really beautiful too. Um, so uh, what emerges is this notion that these games are under the surface, digital pilgrimages, attempts to walk our way into a spiritually meaningful experience, uh, despite, uh, or even in addition to, all this ebullient violence that covers them over. Um, and so you look at these games and, and you, can you talk a little bit about what you'd like to see or what kinds of, because in the conclusion, you talk a little bit about what next steps people could do or what you'd like to see people kind of explore next. So could you talk a little bit about that? Like, um, so what is the next sort of move in thinking about these wandering games and wandering in games and gaming? Yeah. Um, so I think there are a couple different directions. Uh, for one, um, I think that future work, I mean, I, you know, I would love to see all of this. I don't know that I would love to do all of this, uh, but I would love if someone <laughs> um, would uh, do things like, you know, obviously analyzing other works through the theories, this theorization of wandering games, basically, uh, I'm now at the point where I can look at almost any game that I see and think, okay, like if we take all this wandering seriously, like what does that game look like then? What do we, what do we see happening if we really take seriously the wandering? Um, so I think that's possible to do in any number of other games. Um, I could have picked a dozen other games for this book. Um, but you know, these happen to be the ones that I did. So I think just sort of more wandering analyses would be really interesting. Uh, I think too, um, it was quite interesting to look at a single core mechanic across a bunch of different genres. Um, so I would love to either see or do more work that, uh, you know, looks at what it is to just focus in on shooting uh, or jumping or eating uh, as mechanics um, and then how it works in a whole bunch of different, you know, um, different games. Um and what the history is of that mechanic, what the cultural or ideological resonances are of that mechanic, you know, uh, a book that's all about eating in games. Um, actually, there was, there's just a book that came out that I'm really excited to read that's called Delicious Pixels. Um, that's all about, um, you know, eating in games. So maybe this already does some of that. Um, but, you know, I could imagine that sort of piece uh, doing things like talking about consumption and what in-game consumption is. Um, basically, yeah, looking at a whole bunch of different um, games that use the same mechanic. Um, I also, you know, my four conceptual through lines here, work, death, gender, and colonialism. Um, obviously, there's a huge amount more to say about all of those, um, and especially work. By the end of it, I kind of came to this... Um, I got increasingly radicalized by my research on this um, and increasingly interested in things like, you know, the unionization of the gaming industry and the way that the work of play operates. Um, so I think um, more work, more work on work uh, is absolutely called for. Um, 
Arsif, Yasmin Arsif, had this field-defining notion in 1997's Cybertext about ergodic texts, which are texts that require non-trivial effort to traverse. So uh, in part in this book, I was interested in thinking about what that sort of non-trivial effort or that work uh, that you do to play any game, um, what that work means in an era where work has become so late capitalist and problematic and so imbricated in love uh, and so um, non-voluntary, but also in some ways percolating voluntarily through the entirety of your life. Um, and aspects like the gig economy and platform economics um, are all coming into the way that we play, whether or not we want them to. So we've been talking for a while, and so I'm going to ask you my final question always, which is more, what are you working on if there's anything either with Wandering Games or what are you working on now? Is there anything you want to put it? And you don't, you might not have anything, but is there anything you want to kind of toss out there for the next project or any promotion or anything you're doing with this book? Thank you for the question. Um, and the answer is I'm in a far flung basic research moment, which is really exciting. Um, I'm looking at a whole lot of things and haven't focused in on a next book project for sure uh, yet. But I'm interested in, let's see, I'm really interested at the moment in self help and therapy games. So all of these games that uh, have been coming out. Uh, in the last couple years, especially from like self-help influencers like Esther Perel, um, in kind of conversation with therapy apps uh, and all these different ways that we're trying to gamify mental health as uh, as the vibes get worse um, and as the pandemic kind of continues to um, make mental health as such a front and center consideration. Um, so. That's kind of a new area where I'm I'm working on some some new stuff about that. Um, I'm also getting really interested in botany games, the game Strange Horticulture. Um, I'm working with uh, a colleague. I love that game. Yeah, that game is amazing. <laughs> um, and I'm starting to get interested in the way work operates uh, in that game, uh, especially as regards Victorian networks of female scientists. Uh, which in this game kind of become witches or witch adjacent. Um, how, you know, how that's, how that's all working. Um, yeah. Um, I also just got this new job. So uh, I'm kind of, I'm pretty focused on uh, WPI at the moment. Um, and this new role where I'm teaching a whole lot of tabletop games. So I'm teaching a lot of tabletop game design and escape rooms and immersive performance. Um, and so through that, I'm starting to develop some new, uh, both creative projects and research projects. Well, awesome. Melissa, it's been great talking with you. Melissa Kagan, who is the author of Wandering Games. Thanks for talking with me for New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight.